You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. What if I told you that I knew something was killing you? It was destroying you from the inside out. I've seen it in others, and I've identified it in you. Yet, I don't tell you because I fear. I fear that you're not going to like hearing what I have to say. I'm afraid that the news will be too hard to digest. And I like you. I really want you to like me. And I know that if I tell you that you've got other people in your life that will tell you the exact opposite of what I'm otherwise going to tell you. And you'll have to make a decision whether or not you're going to believe them or believe me. And I don't want to lose you as a friend. I want you to keep liking me and include me as one of your friends. So I choose not to tell you about the thing that I see that is killing you. Slowly by slowly, day by day. I would have called myself your friend, but in the end, that definition, that practice would be heavily debatable as to whether or not it's true. This morning, friends, I want to introduce you to a friend that you indeed do have. A friend that you've never met in person, though you've heard from him. A friend that, Lord willing, one day meet in person, and he has some things he wants to share with you, sobering things, but never helpful things. Things that a friend should tell you if they are indeed true, and they are indeed true, because though he writes them, they come from no one less than God himself. To meet this friend, would you please open your Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 5, where we meet this friend by the name Paul. And today he is going to be your friend, and he's going to be my friend. And we might not see it that way at first, because of what he's going to tell us, but we're going to come to understand it. For those of you who are joining us perhaps for the first time, as I reiterated a few minutes ago, let me just state yet again, welcome to the gathering of Grace Church, the, the people. The, the building is not the church. The, the people are indeed the bride of Christ, the brothers and sisters whom Christ died for, and we're glad for you to be with us. We are working our way through the letter of Paul to the churches in Galatia. We've come to Galatians chapter 5 previous weeks. We ended at verse 15. We pick up where we have left off. As we come to this text, let me ask you this question. Has anybody ever been in a conversation with you and seen something that you've done, heard something that you've said, and asked this question, what is your problem? I imagine that has happened to you. It certainly happened to me. Sometimes it's more of a statement than it is an actual question. 
Well, we see this morning in the text what our problem is. And I really want, if I could say by summary fashion, here's what we're going to learn in our text this morning, verses 16 through 24. Here's sort of it in a nutshell, if you will. The, the spoiler alert, Christians delight in God's way and fight against godless desires. That's what Paul's going to unfold for us as a friend. Christians fight in God's way and fight against their godless desires. And all of this is to come to the question of what is the problem? Well, that takes us to our text. If you would, follow along in your Bibles as I read Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 through verse 24. Paul, our friend, says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions and divisions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is our text this morning. Paul, our friend, speaks to us. And really kind of, you can say it like this, poses to us three questions. Question number one is, what's your problem? What is your problem? Now, I trust in today's sort of, uh, you know, digital movie watching, TV watching series of life, whether it be on Amazon Prime or Netflix or Hulu or YouTube TV or whatever, numbers of you have probably watched a movie, maybe even a TV show, where at the very beginning, perhaps in a TV series, in the first episode, they depict a crime that has taken place. And then episode after episode after episode, they string you along, taking you through this maze of speculation, endless imagination, who did it? Who is to blame? Leading you to think certain things, but then showing you new things that you had not earlier considered all along. And finally, you get frustrated, like, just tell me, who did it? Paul's interested in a miniseries here, friends. It's like an Instagram reel. He'll tell you quickly, and he'll tell you succinctly, and he'll tell you accurately what your problem is. And that's exactly what he does here in the text. He says you have a problem, and he wants you to see it right away. He comes out. In verse 16, and he says about the desires of the flesh. The context of this text is that Paul has been talking about the freedom. Freedom that Christians have from the law. We're no longer under the law. We're no longer just. We are free from the law. But, as he said earlier, as we saw in verses 13 and following, that freedom is to be used not for ourselves, but for others. In fact, he directs us through that freedom 
through love serve one another. There's a freedom, ironically, in self-forgetfulness. But you and I know the reality. It's so much easier to live Christianity in this room, in this hour, at this space, with these songs. It's when you walk out those doors. It's when you go to your apartments. It's when you show up for work tomorrow. When you just sometimes get in your automobile. It's just when you open up your phone. Seemingly crouching at the door is an opportunity that seemingly doesn't just distract you, it tempts you. It confuses you. It lures you away. Paul tells us what your problem is. The problem, as he describes it here in the text, is the desires of the flesh. Now, for many Christians, perhaps even some this morning who are new Christians, this is perhaps one of the most surprising realities of the Christian life because you maybe naively or mistakenly understood that the Christian life, once you became a Christian and gave your life to Christ, was going to be free from trouble, as if you sort of just wait until Jesus comes back. You sort of pass through life, sort of trouble-free, problem-free, sickness-free, and then you realized, wow, a lot harder than I realized. And Paul is like, welcome to the fight. Welcome to the reality of what is still true in you, that though you by person have been declared new, by practice you're still engaging in a fight. The term he uses here in the text in Galatians 5, this desires of the flesh. Uh, this term flesh definitely in the Bible. Sometimes the word flesh is referred to literally like the, the muscles, the tissue, the, the skin cells, the hair. Right? That's not what he's talking about. Sometimes flesh is dealing with like the genealogical connection, who you are related to, what ethnicity you identify with. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is the reality that the flesh refers to this Christian propensity to still sin even after you've become a Christian. It's seemingly the charge that everybody can make against us as a Christian. You hypocrites. And the truth is they're right. They're right. You and I profess a Christianity always better than we actually practice. We believe in an ethic of life seemingly virtuous in all its representation except our personal demonstration. We're caught in this tension. The flesh that he's referring to here is this unspiritual part of a person that's still inclined to sin even after having been forgiven of that very sin. It's the surprising reality of temptation that captures so many Christians flat-footed and pushes them back on their backside. Listen to what Paul, the same author, but to a different audience says in Romans chapter 13, verse 14. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This hunger that seemingly cannot be quenched, or so we might think initially. Look back to Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. A few verses above our text for this morning. Look at what he says in verse 13. He says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. This word opportunity comes from a, a military term. It's, it's this idea of a beachhead, of an outpost, of a military 
military operating base. It's this idea that, hey, we're having war way up there. Our seemingly safe reserves are right here, so we've got to put an outpost. We've got to put a beach here to kind of supply us for the war here. And he's like, hey, do not put an opportunity for the flesh. Here's a problem for the Galatians. That's a problem for people in this room here today as well. You've heard how the gospel dismantles legalism. You're not saved by your good works, no matter how good your works are. And nobody can judge you based on that. And you're like, yes and amen. But as we saw two weeks ago, what's the other ditch we fall into? If it's not legalism, it's license. It's simply the opportunity to use our freedom, not for what God has called it to, but for what our desires are. And he is saying, don't give opportunity for the flesh. Do not give into the temptation. Look down to verse 17, what he says here. Giving more elaborate explanation, he says, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. Referring to the Holy Spirit here, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The term civil war is defined by citizens of the same country fighting against each other. This is why I have today's message the civil war that is not civil. It is indeed a war. And the war is these warring desires of the flesh. When Paul says here in the, in the verse, these opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do, what he is saying here is this is the explanation of the purpose behind what each is trying to do. Each is trying to keep the other from coming to fruition. The flesh is trying to keep you from walking by the Spirit, and the Spirit is trying to keep you from walking by the flesh. It is this civil war, and it's all happening inside of you while you smile at us. Look cute, adorable, nice. And you know what I'm talking about. You're like talking inside your mind and right there. I mean, look at somebody right there. Like, you're like being like so judgmental, but you're trying to be so forgiving. You're like trying to be like so patient, but you're like losing your temper inside. Like it's happening right in front of us. There's like a civil war taking place. And my, it's so private, so personal, and sometimes so painful. And Paul says here in verse 17 and 18, why is this happening? Because these things, what's happened is now that you're in Christ, what's happened is there's like this awakening reality that the things you desire to do is not what you actually want, want to do. And the things that you do are things you don't want to do. And it's just this fighting back and forth reality here. But Paul's optimistic. He's not waiting for the jury to come in for its verdict. He's optimistic here. Verses 16 and verse 18 who walks by the Spirit is led by the Spirit. It's like a reverse engineering. He can simply say, who is walking by the Spirit that shows him who is being led by the Spirit. There is a confidence that Paul has here for every Christian. And honestly, sometimes that's what we need from a good friend. When we're discouraged and despairing, disappointed at best, we need a good Christian friend to come alongside us and just give us hope. Paul's a good friend here this morning. He's giving us hope that if you as a Christian are walking by the Spirit, if you're doing things that's not natural to you, you know you. 
You see yourself loving those who are difficult to love. You see yourself being patient with those who are difficult to be patient with. You see yourself enduring what otherwise would just make you walk out of that relationship. If you see any good in you, you're seeing Christ in you, Galatians 2.20. And Paul says, I'm confident. If you're walking by the Spirit, you're being led by the Spirit. There is this, this sort of dual reality of this human responsibility and divine sovereignty of he's working all things out for his good in your life. We've answered the first question, what's your problem? Paul tells us, but let's get to the second question. He goes deeper. Second question, how bad is it? Just how bad is it? Uh, verses 19 and 21 is an interesting list here. It's an interesting list because it's not exhaustive. In fact, the very end of verse 21, he says that, and things like these. Yet nevertheless, he lists off 15 sins. You're like, man, he was on a roll. He just like pen to paper, writing them out. But I want you to see if we can slow the reel down. Some of you, this might be the first time you've ever read Galatians chapter 5. Others of you, perhaps the first time in a long time. Let's slow it down. Let's look at it. Let's make some observations. Because these are helpful. As he wrote to the Christians back then, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that's true for Christians still sitting here in this room today. You can look at these sins, these 15 sins, and you can break them down to four categories. Sexual sins, religious sins, social sins, and alcohol-based sins, if you will. Well, let's look at the first three because these are the sexual sins. We might have different translations before us. You might be reading from the New International Version, New American Standard Version. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, but we're using the sort of same Greek text we're reading from. And so here's sort of the understanding of these words. The first listing here is the word sexual immorality. This is often translated fornication. From this word comes the term pornography, porneia. This term is referring to any and all forms of forbidden sexual relationships. <laughs> we don't need much elaboration on that. We don't need much dictionaries on that. Unfortunately, in Miami, we specialize in this. Not unique to us, but certainly common to us. We almost sort of just brag about this. We sort of plan for this. We sort of indeed build relationships based on this. He compounds them. Sexuality gets number two, impurity. Impurity is a broader term here referring to moral uncleanness and thought, word, and deed. It was used medically to refer to like a wound that had become infected, like, a, like a, a, an open wound that had gauze on it but had become infected and it needed to be cleaned. And this idea here of impurity is that soul is impure in a, in a sexual way. Now what's interesting here is you move from increasingly public to private. Here's why I say that because look at the next one. Next one says sensuality. It connotes an open, shameless, brazen display of sexual endowments. Now, here's what's so interesting about sensuality it seemingly does not require another person in interaction to be claiming it to be practiced. This is a person that can seemingly be not sleeping with a girlfriend on Saturday night, not looking at pornography on Sunday night, but yet still be guilty of such sensuality. Why? Oh, it's become so common back then and even so common today in our modern Western world where even many of us as Christians don't even recognize how we are doing this themselves. We're like the, the frog in the kettle, the water slowly being turned up from public billboards to personal outfits, sexual 
seduction as the currency we trade in, as we validate ourselves by providing visual clickbait with no shame or concern for others and how they may be affected as long as we're being affirmed. Young teenage girls are taught this way under the banner of being cute. As long as they're cute, they're fine. And this just continues into adult years. And we just call it being relevant, and connected, stylistic, and fashionable. But there's no mystery. It's sensuality. Doesn't, notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't legalize to the detail. He principalizes to the practice. He moves from the sexual sins to the religious sins. He lists idolatry and sorcery. Idolatry is this involving in the worship of pagan gods by bowing down to idols. It, it's mentioning this just after listing of sexual sins, probably because it included the male and female prostitution, often part of a pagan religion. This idolatry is a classic problem throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament. Even today, anything that God gives that becomes a replacement for him becomes an idol. Which we say, God, you're allowed to exist in my world, but know that you'll be one of many gods providing me desires of my heart. And at times I'll talk to you in conversation. At times I'll refrain because you might or might not give me what I desire. Idolatry is this desire to have many gods to provide our heart's desire. He continues into the term sorcery. Your translation might have the word witchcraft. It's a translation, interestingly, of this Greek word pharmakia, which we get the word pharmacy. You know, you're thinking, well, is medicine bad? And that's not what he's talking about here. In ancient times, the worship of evil powers was accompanied by the use of mind-altering drugs to create trances. Mood and mind-altering drugs were used in many ancient religious ceremonies to induce supposed communication with deities, associated with witchcraft. Interesting how the mind God gives us naturally, apparently is so much, so, so calmly not enough for us. We want to alter it even use it for religious purposes. Then he moves into social sins. We move from seemingly the, the, the publicly declared against, the ones that you sort of beat the pulpit hard against, but then he gets into seemingly more comfortable ones, and I would say perhaps even more common ones. He moves from three to the two to now the eight as he details these social sins and seemingly with compounding fashion, adding to them, if you will, enmity he talks about. This is the plural form, this primary meaning of hatred between groups. How commonly is this true even in churches between people or in society between ethnic groups or other classifications of people? Strife, the natural result of hatred, these wrongful attitudes invariably with wrong actions. Jealousy, who in here has not been jealous? I will go first. Of course, everybody here has, because why? Because you have something that I do not have, and I'm upset about it. I'm jealous. A single person can be jealous another person has a date. A married person can be jealous another person has a child. A jobless person can be jealous another person has employment. A person who lives in an apartment can be jealous somebody else has a house. It seemingly does not matter. Our hearts will wander into all kinds of fields fueling jealousy. And when anger and resentment comes, coveting comes for what others have been given. 
fits of anger he talks about, these outbursts of temper, often come with a final eruption and smoldering jealousy. Rivalries, this self-promoting attitude which shows itself working again against others at their expense. Dissensions and divisions he talks about here, describing when people fight and quarrel over issues and personalities, causing hurtful divisions. How many people have been in Christ long enough to be in churches, sadly, that have been split by divisions? Over the stupidest of things, like the color of the carpet, shall we have pews or chairs? What time shall the service start at? Are you going to sing my song or their song? It's not been long enough since you sang my song. Friends, this is exactly what the Corinthians did. Except they claim they're teachers. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. Today we have our We cite them. We quote them. And we divide based on them. He then says envy. This evil feeling, a wrongful desire to possess what belongs to someone else. From a family possession to automobiles in the parking lot to houses on the block, envy is waiting for us everywhere. Here's the reality to these eight social sins. They seemingly are the ones that more likely than not are applicable to every single person sitting in this room. Some of us might not be struggling with things like sorcery. We might, by God's grace, be saying, I know what it's like in the past, but by present reality, I'm not necessarily given over to things like sexual immorality. I've had victory in the area by praise be to God. But these seemingly other sins of the tongue tempt us, draw us, divide us. Twice as many sins listed here than any other category. And I want to highlight that while denouncing others may make for easier declarations, these sins make for easier divisions within relationships, especially within the body of Christ. And then not to be forgotten, these two more that he lists here, drunkenness and orgies referring to the excessive use of alcohol by individuals that justifies itself by saying, just one more drink. I have self-control. I'm not getting drunk. I'm just getting buzzed. Orgy seems like an interesting placement, except in that context, in that society, it's not so much about the sexual reality, those things have been discussed earlier, but opposed to the reality that they would fall into this practice because of how alcohol had swept them away into these cultural realities, perhaps even in their worship of the false god Bacchus of what they had come from. And Paul says in sort of comprehensive fashion, verse 21, and things like these. Now this is why I want us to recognize this is so important. I don't know that it's common today for even Christians to think for very long about sin, especially their sin. We might speak of sin in society. We might speak of sin in laws and institutions. We might speak of sin in history. We might speak of sin about others in our community, but to speak of sin in private participation. That would require a level of honesty and humility. But the problem overall in society is that we have cast sin out. We have banished it to a previous generation. Today our problems range from failed neurological synapses to misfiring our brains to bad experiences in our childhood to depleted emotional love tanks and other stated soul causes. 
Sure, we make mistakes. Sure, things are broken. We do need more therapy, not repentance. We need more life coaches, not a savior. Our problems are mistakes that just need to be better aligned. There might be some truth in some of these labels by explanation, upbringing or traumatic experiences or struggling bodies physically. They should not be confused with an excuse. Sin and any of its synonyms has often been removed from our vocabulary today. It's just so seemingly outdated and outfashioned. The problems are multifaceted when we downplay sin. And Paul wants us to understand this, and I want to make sure you don't miss this. These desires of the flesh and the significance of action should take them so much more seriously than we should and not hear them wrongly through the filter of, oh, that's legalism. When we downplay sin, and we were, if not removing entirely perspective, our understanding of God's justice becomes trite. Our understanding of God's grace becomes shallow. Our understanding of hell becomes reassigned to adjectives about how the food tastes, how the weather feels, or how troubled relationships have become. We don't think of hell as a place like Jesus talked about. A place for those who reject God, rebelling against His kingship, refusing His grace. A place of eternal torment and suffering where God rightly deals with people according to their deeds. Our understanding of heaven becomes nothing more than just a reference to baby angels with wings jumping from cloud to cloud or maybe some idolist optimism of a perfect body waiting with perfect skin to be seen. We don't think of it as a place that God describes as a place of no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more separation, and no more death. When we lose our doctrine of sin, we lose so much more than that. So, desiring to be a pastor to you today, taking these 15 illustrations of it, more could be said, but let's get a biblical understanding of sin. Sin is stubborn rebellion against God's rightful authority. Sin is flagrant rejection of God's holy law. Sin is immeasurable perversion of God's good creation. Sin is committing adultery with a sinful world. Sin is when proud humanity turns away from the source of life. Sin is calling Satan honest and God a liar. Sin is the despising of the sacrifice of God's Son. Sin is being foolish in its wisdom, reckless in its decisions, and selfish in its desires. Sin defiles everything it touches, stains everything it encounters, and hurts everything it influences. And we are guilty of it with our very human nature having been fallen. And if an honest reading of the Bible would be dumb, we would see this as plain as day. And often, our temptation is, give me an upbeat word, give me a high-tempo song, give me a word of a promise. I just want another motivational talk sponsored by God. Friends, if you lose sin, you lose the gospel. For what did Christ save you from? Why was he nailed to the cross? So far from our preferred interpretation, our contemporary rhetoric, our family explanation, our worldly commentary, do we see the reality 
We often choose man and soften sin's hard edges. When we do this, we corrupt the cross of Jesus Christ. If you lose the doctrine of sin, you make God the Father out to be a divine child abuser who kills his only son. We make God the Son out to be a masochist who chooses pain over simply just being satisfied with being a good moral example. We make God the Spirit out to be a liar when we try to silence our conscience that he otherwise has. Friends, we need to see our sin for what it is so we can see our Savior for who he is so then we can truly understand how amazing grace truly is. Why does Paul spend so much time talking about these things? Because he wants us as Christians to deal with the honesty of what they are, call them by name, and say, God did not set you free that you'd return back to them. And you don't have to. For every command God gives is the grace that he, endure, he enables to obey that command. And that's what we see here. And too oftentimes we're tempted to domesticate our sin with the hopes that we can master it. My family and I used to live in Indiana for 10 years. One of the coolest things in the state of Indiana is called the Exotic Feline Rescue Center. It is in the middle of nowhere Indiana. You have to drive like an hour plus out of Indianapolis to find it. In the middle of nowhere, 100 plus acres, are this largest collection of lions and tigers and other exotic cats I've never seen before until that time. More than any zoo I've ever been in. But as the title of it is called, Exotic Feline Rescue Center, most of these tigers and lions were previously owned by people like you and me who thought it'd be really cool after seeing a music video or something, to have their own lion or tiger. And they did for a time, sometimes even for years. And then surprise, surprise, the thing turns on them, mauls them, mauls their spouse, mauls their gets out and mauls the neighbor. And they're like, what have I got on my hands? You're like, you have a wild animal on your hands that you wrongly thought you could somehow domesticate and make it your pet. Friends, as Christians, we're tempted to do the exact same thing with our sin, to domesticate our sin. They're telling ourselves we can, we can keep it on a leash. We can walk it around with us. We can follow those accounts on our social media. We can keep those friendships around. We can look at those people that way. We can spend our nights that way. We can somehow tell us, as long as it doesn't sort of overwhelm us, and then we're surprised over time, year after year after year, we hear stories of others, and sadly becomes our own stories when those sins attack us and threaten to destroy us. What we see here in the text is what Paul says that's even more sobering. Look back, if you would, verse 21 at the very end. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
it's significant to understand what he's saying and what he's not saying here. He is not saying Christians don't do these things. If that was true, we wouldn't have to write to this problem. The way he describes this, and sort of the, the form of the verb he's using here, is saying, those who do, referring to those who make a practice of ongoing, continuing to do these things. This is their pattern of life. Their outward conduct indicates that their inward spiritual status is they are not born of God, they actually do not have the Holy Spirit within, and they are not God's true children. For those of you who are not Christians here, I want to make sure you are not left behind in this conversation from God's Word to God's people here. And to not mistakenly think that this is some type of like Christian ethical talk, stop doing the bad things, start doing the good things. That might be an understandable, understandable way which you might by default listen to this, hear this, but that's actually not what Paul's teaching. It's not what I want you to hear me say this morning. This is not a talk on morality for a bunch of Christians. This is not a talk for how you can be talked into making better decisions on what to do with your time, your mouth, your money, your relationships, etc. This is fundamentally you as a non-Christian watching Christians kind of in collective form get on a chiropractic table and have a very loud adjustment. If you've never been to a chiropractor, I recommend it. But I should warn you ahead of time, depending on how jacked up you are with your spine, it might be traumatic. I remember the first time I went to a chiropractor and I got an adjustment. I was like, did you just break my back? That noise has never been heard from until I came into this room. But after that moment of adjustment, I was like, oh man, that just feels so much better. I was like, I just had a kink in my neck. My back felt kind of jacked. I feel like you kind of lined it up for me. Thank you for that. You're watching, dear friend, who's not a Christian, Christians be realigned by God's word to get clarity on what their calling is. If you're not a Christian, you don't need new practices. You need a new heart. And only God can give that to you, which is exactly what he does when you surrender to Christ. The reality here, for anybody who's not in Christ, is that God's goal is not for you to stop doing or start doing God's goal is for you to start believing that you have no way to find peace with him except through faith alone in his son alone who is the perfect, obedient one to the law. That he did what no one has ever done in human history and he offers himself sacrifice on the cross to make punishment for our sin. Receiving that punishment in place of us. Resurrecting from the grave three days later that anybody who would believe in him forgiven. No matter what they do. But being forgiven, they now have new hearts for desire, the things of the Lord. This takes us to our third and final question to answer. We talked about what's your problem. We talked about just how bad is it. Now in 24, we're jumping ahead because we're going to return to this next week. But for this question for now, where do you begin? I want you to understand this as Christians this morning. Go back, if you can, just briefly to verse 16. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit. And then jump down to verse 24, because we'll go back to verse 16 next week. Verse 24, and he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
What Paul is teaching the Galatians is that to be free from the law does not mean free to sin. It means free from sin. It does not have mastery over you. You do not have to obey those desires. You have an opportunity to walk away and to say no. But here's the reality for some of us. The reality for some of us and our fight against these temptations that tempt us is that's very similar to maybe some of you, perhaps, I don't know who you are, I'm not thinking even of you by name, who decided one time in the past, you know what I want to do? I want to become a runner. It's just overall healthy. It's not expensive. We live in a place that has fairly decent weather. We're not getting snowed out. I want to become a runner. You get running clothes. You get running shoes. You, you, you get like a running armband for your phone. You get AirPods type of headphone. You get your playlist. You, you download your running app to get track your distance. And then you lace up and you get outside. And it's hot. Like hotter than you think it was yesterday. You're convinced it's record hot. And you're like, you know what? Tomorrow's a great day to start running. And then you go out the next day, and it's hot. But you're like, you know what? It's going to probably be hot tomorrow. I should probably start running. And then guess what happens when you run? You sweat. <laughs> Who would have thought? And you smell a little bit. And honestly, because you've not run in so long, you, you, you hurt. Your feet hurt. Your knees hurt. Your arms hurt. And you're like, why am I voluntarily doing this? And so after a few steps, you're like, you know what? I'm done. And a friend comes over. A friend who's a runner probably even got you into running, inspired you because you see the effect it's had on them. And they say, what happened? You say, oh, I tried it. Like, tell me about it. Like, well, I put on the clothes. I put on the shoes. I keyed up the music. I got the app started. I went out the door. It was hot, but don't worry. I overcame. I started to run. And it turns out it was harder than I realized it was going to be, and it hurt, and so I'm going to stay home. Your friend would say any number of things to you, like, get up, you fool, to like, come on, let's go together. But they would remind you that anything that you're wanting to accomplish isn't through some path of, like, ease. It's through adversity and struggle. And the other side of that, you see the effect and the benefit. I submit to you a lot of Christians handle the temptation of their sin the same way that a lot of us talk about we're going to be runners one day. One day I'm going to give up that temptation to look at pornography. One day I'm going to put away the alcohol that keeps drawing me back in drunkenness. One day I'm going to give up that relationship that keeps drawing me into other false beliefs. One day I'm going to put away that those possessions and those, those sins, but you don't know what they've did to me. I will deal with it one day, but just not today, because today it's just too hard. What were you thinking the Christian life was going to be like? Paul is your friend. He says, let me tell you the truth. But look at what he says in verse 24. And I don't want you to miss it. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Before Paul gets anything, he wants to go back and remind you of your identity. Friend, I would counsel you this morning, don't start first with what you need to do or not do. Start first, if you're in Christ, by faith alone and Christ alone, start first with what Jesus Christ has done. But he's, your hope is not in your record. Your hope is that you're on team Jesus, who is your representative runner, who has perfectly completed the life for you. And that motivates you. 
You have in Christ, as Hebrews says, a sympathetic high priest who loves you, intercedes for you, never leaves you nor forsakes you. No matter how seemingly disappointing you are, he loves you. He has accepted you. And that ironically should not tempt you to stay on the couch of Christianity, but to get off that couch and to get busy in living for the Lord as you crucify those desires. I'm encouraged by Martin Luther, who said, when you're tempted to despair over your sin, listen to what he said. When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. Where he is there, I shall be also. Friends, we know what the problem is. We know how bad it is, and we know where to begin. Begin with Christ. That's what motivates us to delight in God's way and to fight against the godless desires that otherwise draw us away. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.